Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 16 as uh, we're going to continue on from where we left off uh, following the parable of the unjust steward. As a matter of fact, our text this morning is actually a bridge between the parable of the unjust steward and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We already learned that chapter 16 of Luke is kind of it has all these little money issues and our text mentions money this morning but just to kind of as a side note and uh, we'll kind of see how it becomes the bridge that leads into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus um, uh, if you remember right right before uh, we got to this passage Jesus is talking about uh, the application of the parable the unrighteous steward um, which in verse 9 he says we need to be making friends for ourselves by this unrighteous wealth which is just whatever God has given us we need to use it to evangelize the lost um, to equip the saints of the work of the ministry and otherwise to invest in kingdom purpose is eternity rather than just kind of, you know, sitting around buying more worldly stuff for ourselves and indulging in this world and not being rich towards God. So, so that's what Jesus said. And, and he, he talked about um, just in the immediate context of our passage that you can't serve God and wealth, that you can't give equal devotion to God and wealth. One of them is going to take priority. One of them is going to master your life. It's either going to be God or it's going to be your money, but it can't be both. And so um, that is kind of the context of uh, where we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, let's just say um, you worked in a big warehouse uh, this is a giant warehouse, and, and there were a lot of flammable liquids and materials and all sorts of things that were going on there. And let's just say that as you're working in this warehouse, you um, uh, are there one day, and somebody has a, a forklift, and they knock over some barrels of flammable liquid, and, and they burst open, and they catch fire, and this big river of fire kind of just flows down one side of the building, blocking all the escapes, and things are exploding and catching fire, and everybody's scared, and they kind of huddle to a corner. Corner, and uh, as you're huddling there, you hear the fire engines coming, and and even though the sprinkler systems are going, the the liquids are just kind of seen. It makes them worse, and you're choking on the the acrid smoke, and you know your life is in peril. And uh, then you hear uh, some hacking and pounding, and axe blades start to come through the wall, and and see, soon you realize the firemen are ripping a hole in the wall so you can escape, and they, they chop through the wall and say, "Come out this way." And the owner of the company is there, and he says, "I'm not leaving. I, all my stuff's here. This is my company." And the manager and the assistant manager and the foreman say, "Yeah, this, these are our products, man. We can't be leaving them." Now, what would you think about that? And you know, you'd want to just think, well, the smoke must have got to their head. You don't want, you don't want to knock them out and drag them out anyways. You know, just, you're coming. It would be absurd to stay there in that perilous place and not flee for your life. Well, this is exactly what is happening in our text. Jesus has talked about this unrighteous steward. He's applied this text. He's speaking to his disciples. He's talking to them about how they need to use the resources God has given to them for kingdom purposes. And so he's, he's making sure that they are going to do this. And then comes our text. And so follow along as I read Luke chapter 16 verses 14 through 17. He says, Now the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Now, from this text, you're going to learn four facts about men, about God, and about his law, which will enable you to 
avoid certain errors, believe certain truths, and escape certain judgment. And the first is this. Lovers of money often scoff at those who are generous. Look at verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Literally, the text says they were turning up their nose like, huh. Jesus had just said, use your your resources to win people to Christ. You can't worship God and money. You've got to worship God and then use your your resources, which God has given you for his glory. And they're going, huh. They're scoffing. Why? Because they were lovers of money. They kind of had this weird retribution financial theology thing going on, which kind of went like this. Well, if you have a lot of money, then God must like you. I mean, if God's the one who gives money, gives us all that we have, if you're rich, then God must really love you because he's blessing you with so much money. I mean, you could see how uh, somebody might arrive at that. And therefore, since God has given me so much money, therefore I am well liked by God and my entrance into kingdom is sure. They looked at those who were poor, those who were sick, those who were afflicted, and they thought to themselves, well, those people are obviously cursed by God. Otherwise, they wouldn't be poor. They wouldn't be suffering. They wouldn't be sick. They wouldn't be afflicted. And so they had this weird thought that their money was an assurance of God's favor towards them, and it kind of encouraged them and was kind of a visual proof to other people that God surely was in favor of them because look how much money they had. So because of that, they made God a second priority in their life and put money first. And they pursued money. They thought of money. They acquired money. And they scoffed at Jesus when Jesus said you couldn't serve God and wealth. And they're really like many in the church today who serve the God of money. There are many who call themselves Christians and they have great resources but give very little. Many are quick to accumulate wealth but slow to give it away to kingdom purposes. They think that, well... I know that I have this great wealth, but I'll give a little bit. That's probably the average, they think to themselves, of what other people are giving. And that's how they kind of make themselves feel good. But really, we deceive ourselves when we think that what we have is ours. We dealt with this in weeks past. It's not ours. We are stewards of it. And the question is, what kind of steward are we? Are we investing God's stuff, God's money God's life that we, he has given us for his glory or just to indulge in the things of the world. And Paul knew about this. Paul knew because he was an ex-Pharisee what it meant to be a lover of money. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10 as he's writing to Timothy in the church there at Ephesus. And listen to the graphic description he gives here. He says, but those who want to get rich. Now, can you think of anybody who might want to get rich? I've heard of people back east. There's a small group. Uh, The fact is, if you... Asked many Christians, would you, do you want to get rich? They would say, yes. But listen to what Paul says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. They aren't content. They want more. They think that money is going to make them happy. And we know that there are very poor people who are happy and very rich people who are miserable. That money is neither good nor bad. But the love of money is certainly bad and fixing our hope on the uncertainty of money is certainly bad. And we see this in our economy today as those who, you know, thought, well, you know, I'm going to retire soon. And, you know, I've accumulated this much money in my, you know, mutual funds, which have now plummeted to below half of what they were. Um, You know, they're they're scared. Why are they scared? Because they've set their hope on what? the uncertainty of riches. So this is the kind of thing he's talking about. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. The whole point is, is it's like the love of money is this big pit 
And they're walking along and they fall into it. And not only do they fall into the pit, there's a snare waiting for them when they get to the bottom. They fall into temptation and a snare. And many far, foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into destruction. It just, it just, he describes it as like falling into this precipice, this desire of wanting to get rich. He says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. One time I was quoting this and I purposely just said the root of all evil. I had it probably six people come up to me after the service and say, hey, 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 it's all sorts of evil. I said, oh, really? You've looked at the Greek, huh? The Greek literally reads, it is the root of all that is evil. You can interpret it how you want, but that's what it says. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the face and pierced themselves or impaled themselves on many agrees. It's as if there's a pit and you fall into the pit and the pit has a snare at the bottom. And after it catches you, you fall on the spikes. I mean, you know, it's about as worse as you could get. And this is where the Pharisees were. They were lovers of money. They had fallen into that pit. They had caught themselves in that snare. They impaled themselves with many griefs. And so when Jesus spoke of the proper use of money, the one that one cannot serve God and money, the Pharisees were just run through with conviction. And so like always, when people are really convicted, they do one of two things. They either hum themselves and repent or they turn on the preacher. Oh, preacher he's always preaching about money he's always begging for money and you know some do granted and if they can't do that then they try to you know douse their conscience in a different way like surely there's other people here who have more money than me i mean god surely doesn't want me to give because i don't have very much money i'll let richer people give that's one thing well but what about the richer people the richer people say well i've got a lot of money but other people can give the poorer people can give and then there's other people who say, well, I'll be a great giver in the future. When I make my fortune and I have this huge self-generating income, then I'll wake up one morning, throw away my idol of greed, and then I'll start worshiping God <laughs> automatically. And then other people think, well, you know, I don't really, really want to give God and honor him with what I have. And so I'll just put a little bit in the plate, every, you know, a buck a week. And that way, at least I'm given something. And then they assage their conscience that way. You know, this reveals these different sorts of attitudes, the love of money and unwillingness to really honor God with your wealth that you really, God, I love you, but not as much as my stuff. Do I have to let it go? And you remember what Jesus said at the end of Luke 14. You need to be willing to give up all. Take up your cross and follow me. We are accountable to God, not men. And what matters is not what others give. If you're sitting out there, you know, and the offering plate comes along and all you're thinking about is other people, your heart's not right within you. You should be thinking about, God, what have you given me? What should I give to you? Actually, you should think about it before you even come. So that when you can come, you can just offer it up cheerfully, faithfully, regularly, not under compulsion, with a cheerful heart anonymously so no one knows between you and God givings between you and God is not about another person but of course when Jesus talked like this the Pharisees didn't like it and be warned you can sink a boat with water and you can sink a boat with gold bricks either way is bad secondly religious hypocrites fool men but not God Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men. Just stop there. The Pharisees fancied themselves as being in God's good graces because they had a lot of money and they were externally obeying a lot of the laws. But let me ask you, was there hope of salvation in Jesus? No. Their deep love of God no. Maybe in their promise of the coming Messiah? No. What were they trusting in? Themselves. 
They trusted in their works. They trusted in their external observance of the law. They had everybody else fooled, so they thought, well, obviously we're righteous because everybody thinks we're righteous. But the person that matters is what? God, not men. There is no doubt that you can fool men. I mean, I've seen people be like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, when they're here, they're one thing. And when they're gone, they're another. They come into your office and they tell you what they're really like the rest of the time. It's pretty scary. But let's not miss the lesson here in verse 15, in the beginning of verse 15. That there are those who, like the Pharisees, look down on other people because it makes them feel righteous. This is where the Pharisees were at. You know, if you've come to church for a long time, you've kind of learned the system and the jargon and the motions. You can kind of start looking down on other people, kind of look at that guy, you know, look at that gal. And, you know, they aren't doing this, but I am and I'm serving here, but they aren't. And we start comparing with other people because why? Because when we find other people who we assume are less godly, it makes us feel what? More righteous. But that's not what God wants us to do. What God wants us to do is not compare ourselves with men, but with Jesus Christ, the perfectly holy son of God. And as soon as we do that, the balances immediately shift, peg out, and we see how low we are and how exalted Christ is. Others we find in the scriptures... You know, saying things like, uh, well, I'm not, I'm glad I'm not like that tax collector over there who's weeping and pounding his breast. Or look at that widow who's throwing in her two little microscopic mites, but I am going to. And of course, they take all their money and convert it into small coins so they can stand there and make a lot of clinking as they dump it in. So everybody goes, man, that guy's gone for a long time. Well, they don't know he's dumping in pennies. And so this cure for comparing yourself is to look to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says what he does. If you look at the middle of verse 15, but God knows your hearts. See, that is the great leveler, right? If you fall into, well, I'm better than you are, then you just think of God. And then, so how are you doing in comparison with God? Who's the standard? One time I was preaching at uh, a university and they asked me to come and preach in the end of the world. And, uh, so I preached on the end of the world and somebody after the class asked me, well, so are you telling me that, uh, that mother Teresa and Gandhi and other good people like that are going to hell? I said, well, I'm just telling you that, um, you know, if we compare ourselves with them, they're, they're pretty good, aren't they? I mean, they really devoted their life to their cause, right? They go, yeah. I said, well, how do they compare with an infinitely holy God? And then the guy was silent. God's the standard, not other people. We can always find somebody else, some other axe murderer. Go, well, I'm looking pretty good compared to that guy. You know, look at this guy. Look what that guy did in the paper. You know, I'm better than that. Yeah, but the problem is, is God's the standard, not the axe murderer. God knows our hearts. God sees everything. You know, just think about that. You're, you're transparent to God. He sees everything. You know, you think thoughts, God sees it. You lust, God sees it. You covet, God sees it. You have any sort of wicked imaginations, God sees it. God sees everything. You remember what the Lord told Samuel the prophet concerning King Saul? He said this in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Pharisees had all men fooled and the men thought they were righteous because they were looking at the externals. God saw their heart and he said, it's detestable. David told Solomon in first Chronicles 28, nine, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. You know, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking, well, I'm here and nobody's around and I'm just going to indulge in some wicked thoughts. 
God's watching. He's listening. He knows everything. Everything you think is, you know, it's like it's printed out on a sheet and put before him on his desk. He sees everything. He knows everything. And this goes a long way in curbing wickedness. As the author of Hebrews says in 4.13, that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees all. And we may fool people, but we're not fooling God. The Pharisees were fooling people, but they were not fooling God, Jesus says. Jesus speaking to the church of Thyatira pronounces judgment on the false teacher. He names Jezebel along with her disciples and says this in Revelation 2.23. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. God searches the minds and the hearts. He sees right through us. We're transparent. And if you're honest with yourself before at all seeing God, you know there's plenty of wicked in your heart. You may be pretty cleaned up on the outside, but if you're honest with yourself, you know your heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else. That all day long we have selfish thoughts and angry thoughts and lustful thoughts and greedy thoughts and covetous thoughts and whatever it is. I mean, we're just full of it, aren't we? And you may think to yourself, well, well, Jack, if that's the case, then, you know, I mean, this seems like there's nothing we can do. And that, that is the exact point that Jesus is getting at. And we come to we come to God. We don't come to God and say, Lord, look at my money. So let me in. Look at my self-righteousness. So let me in. Look at my church attendance, my Bible reading. So let me in. No, we do those things because we love God. We don't do those things so God will love us, so God will save us. We must bow before the king of righteousness saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how God wants it. That's probably the best verse in all of hymnody from Rock of Ages. It just talks about our utter helplessness and our utter inability to approach God. But you know what? Almost all hymnals, including our own, leave out that stanza. Why? Because it talks about how helpless we are and people just don't. We don't want to put that one in there. I mean, you know, we're kind of good. No, no, we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. We must cling to the cross of Christ. We're helpless. We look to God for grace, though we may see ourselves as pretty good compared to others. When we compare ourselves with God, we're foul. And so we fly to that fountain, which William Cooper wrote is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. We run to Christ because it's his blood, his sacrifice that cleanses us and makes us righteous before God, not ourselves. And there are many professing Christians today who convince themselves that they're worshiping God because they feel good about themselves. Well, that's not an indicator. They say, well, I'm doing a lot of things. That doesn't mean your worship is accepted. It must be in spirit, that is from the heart and truth, according to God's word, both, not one, not the other, but both. Great intentions from the heart, disobedience to God's word is unacceptable. Obedience to God's word, bad intentions to the heart, unacceptable you got to have both of them you come to jesus because he is the way the truth and the life and no one gets to the father but through him there's no other way and you can't get there through your righteousness and maybe you're thinking to yourself the jack listen i don't know how to get to that place i know i'm a sinner and i know i know that jesus is the savior but i just can't leave my sin i won't leave my sin i mean in in my mind i want to leave my sin but i keep going back to it i'm enslaved to it and i just can't get the power or whatever it is to save myself or have god save me i don't know what to do 
And that brings us to our third point, be of good courage, there's hope. Look at verse 16, where Jesus goes on to say, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Thinking, well, why is that a hope? Now, remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees who have scoffed at him because of his teaching about the use of money and putting God before money. Now, if we looked at this just divorced from its context, we would say, well, yeah, obviously the law and the prophets, the Old Testament was written and then John the Baptist came. Yeah, okay, that's easy. Okay, what is what is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying here is the law and the prophets came before John and what did they proclaim? The coming Messiah and the forerunner to the coming Messiah. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 5.39? He said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of what? Me. They bear witness of me. He went on to say in verse 46 of John 5, for if you believed Moses who wrote the law, you would believe me for he wrote of me. So Moses writes all these predictions of the coming Messiah so that when the Messiah would come, people would what? Receive him. Hello? You know, if I wrote a letter to you, said I'm stopping by your house on this night for 15 minutes, please be there. And then I show up and you go, what are you doing here? Well, I did write you a note. Yes. And you did read it? Yes. And it did say I was coming tonight? Yes. I'm here. So why are you here? See, does does that not work? See, that's what's happening. The Old Testament says, here's the Messiah. This is who he is. This is where he comes from. This is where he's born. This is where his tribe is. This is the circumstances. All these prophecies about Jesus' birth and his coming. And then Jesus comes, fulfills all those prophecies. And what do they do? What are you doing here? We are following you. you. Do you see how utterly blind they were? Our text really literally reads the law and prophets until John. The, the were, pro, were proclaimed part, as the New American Standard, the NIV have it, is supplied by the end of the verse, which says, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been or is preached. And what, what's being contrasted is there's something that was preached before John and something that was preached after John. And so were or were proclaimed is usually inserted there. But literally it reads the law and the prophets until John. And since that time, the gospel, the kingdom is preached. So in other words, you got preached to you the law and the prophets until John, which said the Messiah was coming and said the forerunner was coming. And you know that you know that now, now we're going to take a little fun rabbit trail and this is really cool. Um, so you're going to have to keep a finger or ribbon, a piece of paper or whatever in Luke 16. And then I want you to turn to Matthew 11, Matthew 11. And we're going to be kind of going back and forth here a little bit and even in another text and so we're going to get very dexterous or whatever you would call it matthew 11 this is not a parallel text but it's a similar text where jesus speaks of the same subject matter in a very similar context and it helps us understand our text better and so i want to point this out to you look at matthew 11 verse 7 and it says, and these were men were going away and Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. This is John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, did you just see like a stick in the wilderness? No, man. John was out there. People were walking down the roads, you know, to Jericho. He was at the, the Jordan saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they thought, let's go see this guy. So they were turning, you know, to go see him because, you know, he wasn't just some little like stick by the river, man. This guy was thrown down. He says, what did you go to see? He says, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No. I mean, John wore coarse camel hair. I mean, the guy ate bugs. He says, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. 
Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? This is the one, verse 10, about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, what does that mean? He's not only the prophet, but he's the prophet who is the forerunner of the Messiah. And he quotes what? Malachi 3.1. Now, finger, Luke, finger, Matthew, back to Malachi. Malachi is the next book, just right before Matthew. Just go right there. It's one of those small little ancient minor prophets that are sometimes hard to find. But this one's right before Matthew. You'll be able to do this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus quoted this. Let me just quote the whole verse. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here, he says there's going to be a messenger and all of a sudden the Lord is going to appear in his temple to his people. The Lord's going to show up. So we know that there's a messenger and we know that the Lord follows the messenger. So after he gives that little bit of information and then he goes down in Malachi three and he rebukes them for some various sins they were in at the end of chapter three, he encourages those who fear the Lord that they'll not be forgotten. And chapter four predicts more judgment. But then look at the last two chapters of the last two verses of the Old Testament. This is the last book of the Old Testament ever written and the last two verses in the Old Testament. And notice what it says, Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, where we read this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Okay, we're going to abandon Malachi. Stick with Matthew and Luke. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus quotes that Herald who would precede the, the Messiah. He was always also spoken of in Isaiah 40, the voice crying out in the wilderness. So here Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed, explaining that the Messiah would come and his forerunner. You know this. You're experts in the law. You got the message. I'm coming. And guess what? John came, John came, and I've come. That's what he's pointing out here. Now, in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born of woman. Now, just making a statement like that is, you know, pretty amazing, right? I mean, when Jesus says that, he's obviously right because he's God. So he's greater than any Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great. He's better than Adam and Noah and Moses and Daniel. There is nobody, nobody on earth born of woman that has ever been greater than John the Baptist. And then look at the end of verse 11. He misses this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's like, Whoa. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? The lowliest sinner on earth, the most wretched, rebellious, sin cursed person here on earth who makes it into the kingdom of heaven will be greater than the greatest man who is ever born on earth. Why does Jesus say this? He says this to make this one point. Make sure you get in. It doesn't matter how great you are here on earth. I'm telling you, if you can get in the door, if you can get in the kingdom of heaven, everything will be great for all eternity. But if you don't do that, it won't be good for all eternity. You've got to get in. You've got to get in the kingdom of heaven. Get saved. Get in the kingdom. 
But if you get into the kingdom of heaven, even if it's by the skin of your teeth, even if it's on your deathbed, even if you're like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me and then die. You'll be greater as the lowest person in heaven than the greatest person who has ever lived on earth. That is amazing. Look at Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Now notice he too uses this from the days of John the Baptist until now, this reference of time period. There's something happening before John. It's the exact same words he uses in our text. But he says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What is that? Well, if you remember... When John the Baptist came, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what do they do to him? I just cut off his head. They killed him, right? They killed John for preaching the way of salvation to them. Then Jesus came along and they tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him in many other different ways and persecuted him and persecuted his Messiah or or disciples. Even though he was the Messiah, they persecuted he his disciples and the message and the messengers, they, they rejected and said, oh, Jesus has got a demon. Oh, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. They were constantly rejecting, rejecting. And so the kingdom of heaven was suffering violence. But then Jesus makes this interesting little statement here. He says, but violent men take it. That is the kingdom of heaven by force. Now that is an interesting statement. Who's taking Kevin by force? Is it the religious leaders? Are the religious leaders trying to take heaven by force, but they can't? Or are there people actually taking it by force? See, that is the question, isn't it? That is the question. And then Jesus says in Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Notice that until John, just like our text. And if you are willing to accept that John himself is Elijah who was to come, he who has an ear, let him hear. Did you see that? Jesus quotes Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, which predicts the coming of the forerunner. He says, you know the law, you know the prophets, you know the Messiah would come and you know he'd be predicted by the the forerunner and you know that that's the last thing mentioned in the Old Testament. So John the forerunner has come and I've come and you need to believe in me. If John's the forerunner, who does that make me? The Messiah. Okay, we're done with Matthew. Now go back to our text. Rabbit trail over. But I just wanted to see that because it's going to help us understand our passage. Now look at Luke 16, 16 again, where Jesus says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. We've already explained what that meant. It means that they were constantly proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and his forerunner all the way up until the forerunner came. The forerunner came. Since that time, since John the Baptist showed up, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. What? The kingdom of heaven. The same, almost the same exact thing. As a matter of fact, you see that word forcing there where it says everyone is forcing his way into it at the end of verse 16. That word forcing is the same word translated violent as in violent men take it by force in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And so what what does that mean? Who is that? Well, there's basically three interpretations that I came across, and I didn't mention these the first service, but since, you know, you guys, uh, you know, are my friends, I'll give you this extra data. Now, actually, I had several people come up and ask me, so I thought, okay, I'll tell you. Um, one person said, well, it's demons are trying to take heaven by force which, of course, is pretty novel, but there's no mention of that at all in the context, so that's not it. Um, The other is the Pharisees were trying to force their way in, but that doesn't work either. You say, well, why is that? Well, because when you think about it, were the Pharisees trying to enter in any differently before and after John? No. See, whatever this is happened 
since John. Since John came, people started to stampede for glory. Do you remember what happened when John came preaching by the Jordan? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you remember what happened? Let me just remind you, Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, then Jerusalem was going out to him. Notice, Jerusalem. He just says the whole city. Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized him in the Jordan as they confessed their sins. What is the picture here? A stampede. As soon as John is like, there's some, there's a prophet. He's down by the river. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling everybody to repent. The Messiah is coming. Let's go. And the whole group of them just went down there. Everybody went down there and the leaders went down there, but not to get baptized, but to observe because they didn't need to confess their sins. They were righteous. They thought, but who was coming to Jesus? Well, just turn back. Just as a reminder to the beginning of Luke chapter 15. 15 verse 1, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Those people were coming. Those people saw their sins. They saw their wretchedness, their immorality, their deceit, their lying, their treachery against God. And they realized, man, we need God. We need God. And so they're all piling in. That's why when Jesus went, those huge crowds were mobbing to get to him. Why? Because they saw their need. And they were pressing in. And so what does this mean, this whole forcing his way into it? I mean, think about it. Did Jesus ever use any sort of hyperbole to describe that our entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Strive to enter the narrow way. Think of you ever remember that? Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. Hate your father and mother. Give up all your possessions, pick up your cross, die to yourself, follow me. Uh, He says it all the way in the context leading up here, right? Who are these people who are offering what Thomas Watson calls holy violence to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's those who see themselves as sinners. The word violence describes kind of a desperation, a, a person who's compelled they're terrified. They're emotionally wound up. They're like, man, I've got to go. Like a person in a burning building who realizes, ah, and they're clawing to get into the kingdom of heaven. As soon as Jesus, as soon as John began to preach or those, and you know what was strange is the religious leaders who should have known better, who had the law, who had the prophets, who knew the law, who knew the prophets, who had everything they needed to know Jesus was coming. When he came, they rejected him. And who was coming in? The tax cutters, the sinners, the immoral people, the adulterers, the drunkards, the thieves. All those people are like, I need God. I need God. And so they're clawing their way in and the religious leaders are going, we don't need that. We're righteous. You know, a lot of times we, we have a confusion here because we think to ourselves, well, if we're supposed to like strive and the whole, even if it's hyperbole, you know, the cutting off the hand, the hating father and mother, to, you know, dying to oneself, taking up one cross. I mean, that seems like things that we have to do. Is that kind of like work salvation? It seems like it's work salvation. And this is where a lot of people get confused because they just, you know, they see Jesus as hard demands. I mean, Jesus is speaking here. And, you know, even you say, well, I disagree with that interpretation. Well, then just go back a chapter. If that doesn't work, go back to chapter 14 where it's really scary. And it's just, you know, Jesus makes hard demands upon sinners. Well, you say, well, is this teaching work salvation? No. No, it is not. 
God is sovereign in salvation. But a lot of people don't understand how to meld the sovereignty of God. They a lot of times fall into two two wrong errors. One is to say we are totally in control of ourselves. We are the masters of our own destiny. We tell God. We make God choose us. We do this and God responds and we're sovereign over our own being, which is wrong. The other is, is God is completely sovereign. He's so sovereign. You could just lay on the couch and he'd save you. You don't need to hear anything. You don't need to do anything. He's going to save you because he's absolutely sovereign. Listen, if you were to witness to somebody, and you you see somebody who needs Christ, you go up there, you witness to him, and the person repents and believes in Christ, do you go around and say, I saved somebody? Would you say that? You say, I saved them? No, you say, well, God saved them. Well, hold a second here now. You shared the gospel with them. You opened your mouth. You're the one who led them to Christ. Obviously, you saved them. No, no, God saved them. Or how about this? You know somebody who needs Christ? You, you, you begin to pray for them and pray for them. And all of a sudden, one day you're at work and you get this phone call at lunchtime. And so he says, you won't believe this. I became a Christian. And you just you throw up your hands and say, I saved them, Lord. I mean, is that what you say? They go, no, of course not. You say, praise God. Why? Because he saved them. But you prayed for them. So you say, well, so what does this mean? It means this. God is absolutely sovereign, but he also uses means to accomplish his will. You know, we are God's instruments. We are, you know, his hammers and chisels and saws. But God's the, the great carpenter who uses us. You know, if you went into some master craftsman's shop and you saw all this incredible furniture, you don't go, man, look at the furniture that those tools made. The guy would be insulted. Hey, I made those, not the tools. Well, didn't the tools do the work? Yeah, but I was wielding them. I supplied the power behind them. And that's how it is with God. He has means that he uses. He supplies the power, but he uses means like prayer, like us sharing the gospel. It's not just God is sovereign. It's God is sovereign and he uses means. So when we read in the scripture and we see things like, you know, Jesus making hard calls upon people force your way in, strive to enter the narrow way or things like that. Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. You can't enter. If you, unless you give up everything, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you see statements like that, some people get confused. They think, well, that, that, that seems like a works thing. You know, what if the rich, the young rich man would have said, okay, I'll give up all my possessions. Would that have earned him his salvation? No. So then why did Jesus say it? Well, that was a whole different reason. Jesus was trying to get him to realize that he had a love of money over the love of God. And if he loved God more than money, then he would have set aside his idol and trusted in God, which would have saved him. Though God, though absolutely sovereign, has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And there's some who we would describe as hyper Calvinists who would say, well, we don't need to pray. Why? Because God's already going to do what he's going to do. We don't need to witness or send out missionaries because God already has chosen who he's going to save and he's going to save him anyways and nothing in Florida. He's absolutely sovereign. The problem is, is that's wrong. That is an error. That's to become unbalanced. That is to pit the sovereignty of God over the means of God instead of taking them together. We call sinners to repentance. We tell them to believe. We point them to Jesus. We say believe. We say repent. We say follow Christ. And when they do, we praise who? God. Because we know if they did that, it was by his grace. And so if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, well, listen, man, I haven't. I haven't given my life to Christ. And I know that. I know I'm not a believer or I'm not sure if I'm a believer then you need to believe. You need to turn from your sins. You need to trust in Christ. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're out there thinking, well, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. Well, then you beg God. You get desperate. 
You run to Christ. You beg him. You make that the number one priority of your life until God saves you and your life is transformed. But you don't sit back and go, well, you know, God has to save me and it's nothing of me and therefore I'm just going to sit back. No, God is sovereign, but he calls you to repentance. God is sovereign. He calls you to believe. And if you repent and believe, it will be by his grace. He's not going to reject you if you're pounding at heaven's door, humbly confessing your sins and asking him to forgive you. Fourth, God's law never fails. And this is kind of a really weird part of the passage. It's not really weird because, you know, almost all these phrases in this section here, if you just took them out of the context, they're easy to understand. See, you look at verse 17, it says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. And you're realizing, well, he's talking about here about the enduring nature of the law, that the law never fails, that there are certain truths, those eternal truths contained in the word of God, which are going to abide forever and are just never going to go away. Okay, that is easy to understand. You know, the one stroke just means like the smallest little Hebrew accent mark is never going to go away. It's never going to go away. Okay, okay, that's easy. The question is, what's it doing here? Now, we can understand that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. But what's that statement doing in this text? See, that is the trick. And I was thinking about this. and I was thinking, man, this is just a, this is kind of a nightmare passage. Sometimes when you're studying, you just run into these little things and you think, well, I understand that verse, but what's it doing here? Let me just give you some reasons why I think this verse is here. First, I think Jesus talks, he's talking to the Pharisees. I think he reminds them of the enduring nature of the law, the unfailing nature of the law. First, to let them know that even though the gospel of the kingdom is preached and is preached that you enter the kingdom by faith, that even though the gospel of the kingdom is preached, that the, the truth that salvation is by faith is not eradicating the law. Secondly, I think Jesus says the law will not fail to let them know that if they don't trust in him for salvation, what are their, what do they have left? The law. See, you either get into heaven by faith in Jesus or you get to be judged by the law without mercy. Uh, you know, what are you going to choose? It's pretty scary. Pretty no brainer. It's like you're going to run through the hole in the wall and get out of the burning building. You're going to stand there and figure your own way out. Go with the law. You get fire. And then Jesus says this little interesting statement. If you look in verse 18, which we're going to save to the end of the series that is coming up on singles. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. What? What's that doing there? You know, it's like he's talking about money before he's talking about money after. It's like, man, what are all these weird verses? They seem like they're kind of all thrown in there, you know, like this little mixed salad here of things. Well, Jesus put that in there because they justified themselves in the sight of men, but they were wife swapping. They just thought all the law says is all we need to do is write a certificate of divorce and we can dump our wife and get another one. So they were just taking and receiving wives at will. So Jesus mentions this violation of the law so that they would know the law has not failed. They were trusting in their righteousness and Jesus says the law is not failing. Just because salvation is by faith in me doesn't mean the law has failed and you're breaking the law, which means you're going to be judged by the law now i want you to turn to one other place matthew chapter 5 this is the sermon on the mount i just want to take you here and show you this other little cool thing which talks about a similar phrase about the law in matthew 5 verses 13 
and following. Jesus talks about us being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, let your light shine before men, verse 16. He's talking about we need to be witnesses for him to lead people to Christ. It's the same exact thing he says in the near preceding context of our passage. Use your wealth to win friends to Christ. You know, use the resources. You can't serve God and men. Honor God, which means use it for kingdom purposes to equip the saints, to evangelize the lost. Same type of thing in these verses, verses 13 through 16. And then in verse 17 and 18, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, notice the emphasis on the law, just like if you turn back to Luke, Luke 16, verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were proclaimed. The law is enduring and will not fail. And you're breaking the law. That's what basically 16, 17, and 18 are saying. So the question is this. Why does Jesus include this? It's for this simple reason. Jesus came to earth, was born of a virgin, so that he could be born without a sin nature. We all have sin natures, right? We are sinners in Adam. The sin nature is passed down from Adam to the fathers, to the fathers, to the fathers. So all the fathers all pass down and do us a favor and all give us the sin nature of Adam. Jesus then is born of a virgin and has, who is his father? God. So he escapes the curse and sin nature that's been passed down from God. Then... Jesus lives a perfect life and does what? Fulfills the law. He fulfills the law of God, doesn't he? He obeys it perfectly. Then he willingly offers himself up on the cross to die the death we should have died, to make atonement for sins, is buried and then rises again, showing that he had done no sin and he conquers death. Now get it. Why is it important that the law never fails? Because it's this. Don't think that God has eradicated the law and therefore you can get in and the law's gone. The law remains. And you know what? God requires it of you. God requires of each and every one of us absolute perfect obedience to the will of God. You say, well, Jack, how can you do that? That is exactly where God wants you to get to. You say, well, what do you mean? You have to get to the place where you realize, God, I can't obey the law perfectly. And God says, okay, there's one who did. And if you place your faith in him, he is willing to take your sin from you, having died the death that you should have died, having suffered the wrath of God in your place, and he's willing to justify you, declare you to be righteous, and to give to you his perfect life of obedience, his perfect righteousness, so that you can fulfill the law in him. That's called the doctrine of substitution. And that is why... Jesus mentions the law is not failing, Pharisees. And so if you reject me, you're going to have to fulfill the law on your own and you're not going to make it. And so what we need to realize in our lives today is have we run to Jesus? Have we got to the place where we have received Christ as our Savior, and if we have, if we repent, if we believe in Jesus in saving faith, then what happens? We're forgiven in Christ. We're justified in Christ. We're washed clean by the blood of Christ, and then Christ, because of his love for us, reckons to our account his perfect law-keeping, so that God's standard is still met because he fulfills perfectly the law that never fails, that will not pass away. And so we can stand before God perfect and holy and just because of what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus wanted the 
Pharisees to know and which they wouldn't believe. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders in John 5:45 says, "Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. You either get the law without mercy judging you, or you get Christ's righteousness given to you, all your sins taken away, and then you stand in Christ, perfect before a holy God and acceptable in his sight. Those are the two paths that everybody dies having taken. So as we leave here today, remember the lesson not to scoff at our need to be generous to God. It's not a waste. It's wise stewardship. Secondly, remember you can fool men, but you can't fool God. You may fool everybody around you that you are a very upright, faithful Christian, but God knows your heart. See Jesus as the fire escape and flee from the wrath to come. Stampede for glory. Force your way in. Strive to enter the narrow way. Run from the only exit that is available, which is Christ. And remember, God's law is not passing away. And if you reject Christ, then your only other hope, which is no hope at all, is to fulfill the law perfectly. That's what Jesus wants us to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the lessons we learned in this text. Father, you are so great to us, so good and kind. I just pray that if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, that you would open their hearts, that you would, your grace would be poured out upon them, that they would believe, that they would scratch and claw, that they would say, Lord, help my unbelief, that they would not stop pursuing you and your salvation, which is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, because you are a good and loving God. May you save sinners this morning. And for the rest of us who know you, may we learn the lesson and praise you all the more for your grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.